This is Macro Horizons, Episode 2, 45 Going on 30, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and John Hill to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of January 22nd. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Thanks, Ian. So, in the week just passed, we saw the government shutdown become the longest on record. Ten-year yields are still well within the range they've held in. Equities have staged a modest bounce. And one of the most hawkish members of the FOMC has come out and advocated for the pause to continue and for the Fed to be patient. What's your take? I think that the most significant thing that has happened so far in 2019 has really been the fact that the Fed has signaled a willingness to pause. That's new information and, frankly, information that I didn't think would come to fruition until we were much further into the year. So with the Fed signaling flexibility and a willingness to take a break from hiking, the question isn't in my mind, when do they restart, but will they ultimately restart? So they've definitely said they're taking a pause, which really points to the March meeting because they were never going to go in January anyway. And so if the Fed pauses in March, it seems very unlikely that they're going to restart in May. So that makes June the most pivotal meeting in 2019. So with that context, we've been contemplating kind of three different scenarios for what happens during this pause period. At least in my mind, there's one of three outcomes. One is the Fed pauses. It pauses for, call it a year. We continue to see the U.S. economy in a version of this Goldilocks scenario where inflation starts to build up, but nothing that gets out of control. We see U.S. growth continue to move along just fine. And the pause is really because of external factors, whether it's the trade war, whether it is slowing economic prospects for China or Europe. And in this situation, the Fed can remain on hold, steepening out the yield curve and a bit of a bear steepening within the range, but as the front end of the market remains anchored to Fed expectations. I think that is probably the consensus at this point. The second scenario is a situation in which growth starts to pick up, inflation domestically starts to pick up, but because of uncertainty overseas and in different regions of the world, financial conditions remain too tight for the Fed to actually respond to the domestic situation. And if that occurs, I think we see a buildup of inflationary pressures. We see a more significant re-steepening of the curve, presumably in a bearish fashion. And 
at some point, the Fed ultimately needs to come back in and raise rates. And here, I think it becomes a bit more nuanced. It takes the Fed longer to ultimately come back and start hiking, call it a, a 2020 event. But when they do, it leads to ultimately higher policy rates because they have to play a bit of catch up with the realities of inflation. The third scenario, and this is the one that I'm leaning towards at this moment, is the Fed has paused. We have yet to see the full impact of prior rate hikes flow through to the economy. We might be due for a modest slowdown, a, a bit of a technical recession that lasts a couple quarters, induces the Fed to be a bit more easy on the policy front, and that translates to the market far more eager to price in rate cuts. So we see a short-term bull flattener, which is predicated on the idea that the Fed is going to be unwilling to shift too quickly from being hawkish to pause, then pause to ease. And so the front end, again, in this scenario, remains relatively anchored. The second leg of this trade is a re-steepening led by the very front end, and so a bullish re-steepening in this context. This is, frankly, our base case scenario here, not because we think that the economy is due for a significant recession or anything comparable to what we saw in 2008 but rather that the mounting headwinds, the amount of tightening that the Fed has already done are bound to have some material impact on the real economy. And we're starting to see signs of that. And so frankly, the, our takeaway from the last week or so has been the monetary policy outlook has changed, but along with it, the expectations for the real economy as well. Thanks for the update, Ian. Turning to some of the questions we fielded this week, we've been hearing an increasing amount that many are starting to think a steeper curve is the obvious outcome as the Fed comes to a pause and maybe approaches the end of this cycle. Are you in this camp? How are you thinking about uh, those playing for a steepener? Well, the re-steepening of the curve was always going to be the 2019 big trade. And so from my perspective, I'm working on the timing of that trade. I don't think we're there yet. I do think the curve will end the year steeper, but at the end of the day, it ultimately comes down to what the Fed is going to do in terms of pushing forward with rate hikes and also how long someone might be interested in holding a steepening position. Given the carry, given what's going on in the very front end of the curve, if it's a position that's gonna be held for four, six, eight months, the steepener makes complete sense. There will be periods in which the curve reflattens, however, and there will be periods in which we see the debate play out between a more active Fed, less active Fed, how long are they going to be on hold, and what are the implications for the actual terminal rate? So that's what I'm thinking about the curve, at least at this point. John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, the, the thing that I would like to add to that is I think it depends where on the curve you're looking is twos, fives are a very different animal than, say, twos, tens or fives, thirties. And my conviction in fives, thirties ending the year steeper is a little bit higher than twos, fives, where the path of Fed policy potentially going into a recessionary period or the end of this hiking cycle is a lot more intact. Whereas, say, fives, thirties, you might expect to end steeper, where thirties remained relatively well bid 
as the back end price is kind of the neutral economy, whereas the belly might reflect more of intermediate Fed policy expectations. So one of the things I've actually heard from a couple clients is this idea that 530s, the flattening might be over. And it's the easy trade from now is just a re-steepening. And clearly, this has occurred at a point of lower rates than a lot of people had been expecting. But I actually struggle, and I don't have an answer. I struggle with whether or not that inflection point has already occurred. I think just as interesting is the TINS 30s curve. TINS 30s historically is not entirely a Fed story. It's more of a macro story, a macro and inflation story. And so as the picture becomes more clear in 2019, I think that'll be a trade to watch. Everybody thinks going forward, one of the big unknowns for this year is going to be, continue to be trade policy. And how are you thinking about the role that the dollar is playing in that dynamic and whether it be inflationary impulses or moves in yields or anything along those lines? The relevance of the dollar is certainly multifaceted. On one level, it's going to be a reflection of what we see in terms of Fed policy, obviously a push towards a additional rate hike or two this year would incrementally be supportive. On the other hand, if we continue to see dollar strength, certainly that which has characterized at least the, the last couple months, we will probably get to the point where we no longer risk importing inflation, but on the contrary, we risk importing deflation, which intuitively takes a little bit of the edge off of the Fed's need to, to move forward with rate hikes. You also mentioned the trade war and what is currently playing out, particularly between the administration and China. I think that over the next coming weeks, we will certainly get some incremental clarity, although it doesn't strike me that there's going to be any clear resolution, certainly not before the end of January. Probably, We probably won't have anything conclusive until March. Uh, one of the things that the recent slowing in in Chinese exports and imports has been at least ostensibly doing is giving more power to Trump and the administration at the negotiation table with China. It's not entirely clear to me that that means that we'll have a deal more quickly. I would argue that it actually might simply embolden Trump and we could find ourselves in a situation where the administration is looking for more from China rather than being in a position to accept any type of uh, compromise to move the ball forward. I don't know, John, what do you think? I think that's fair. In terms of the impact on the dollar and the feed through into inflationary prices, as trade policy has been a negative impulse on trade activity writ large and more globally, you've actually seen some positive influences on the dollar helping to kind of depreciate some emerging market currencies or other currencies, which serves as an extra downward force on domestic inflationary pressure. So looking at some of the inflationary impulses and other things that are fundamentally driving macro financial markets, how are you thinking about a post-QE world and what a potential weaker correlation between treasuries and equities might look like going forward? Well, I think that the, if anything, at this moment, the market is in a transitionary stage between movements in risk assets and treasuries. And by that, I mean, we're, we're right on the precipice of the point in which 
bad information and bad economic data becomes good for risk assets because it implies that the Fed will take a easier monetary policy stance. Whether that means that we'll ultimately start to price in more in terms of rate cuts for the year ahead or for 2020, that remains to be unseen. But one thing is pretty clear, now that the Fed has signaled a willingness to pause, if the data continues to deteriorate, the implication is going to be an easier Powell Fed than we had been pricing in at the end of 2018. And in, in addition, this might get a little bit wonky, but one of the ways I think about the correlation between equities and rates is, you know, kind of by definition, when the Fed wants to be hawkish, that means that they're raising interest rates without providing a positive economic impulse. So you get higher rates, more discounting of future cash flows without more earnings potential or something like that in equities. So you'd expect higher rates, lower equities. And historically, if you look at the 52-week rolling correlation between equities and treasuries, this got a lot of attention a few months ago. Treasuries stopped serving as a hedge for a little bit there in late 2018 when the market was starting to realize that the Fed was actually tightening monetary policy. So the the lack of treasuries as a hedge for equities said differently is kind of just saying the Fed is being hawkish. Going forward, it seems that we've had a pivot where the Fed is no longer on autopilot, quarterly cadence, any of that. They've really kind of pivoted to a more dovish or accommodative stance, or at least a willingness to be where the economic data to play out as such. And if you think historically, equities have been considered a natural hedge for inflation. And if there is no inflation in the system, the idea or relatively low inflation in the system, the idea that there should be a bid for equities uh, starts to come under pressure. On the flip side, an easier Fed or more dovish Fed implies a willingness to let inflation run hot. And so intuitively, it makes sense then that you might actually see a bid for equities. So back to the notion that bad information becomes good again for the equity market. And this pivot that, John, you you touched upon, how is that shaping how you're thinking about credit markets? I know there's been a lot of a lot of research done and a lot of chatter that we've heard on the desk about, you know, shifts within investment grade, junk bonds, stuff along those lines. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, a fair question. And especially this spillover. One of the core points of quantitative easing was you make very safe assets expensive. You lower the return on treasuries. So you rebalance your portfolio into riskier assets. As treasuries and real yields have picked up, it makes sense that you see a bit of a sell-off in investment grade and high yield. And frankly, that is what tighter financial conditions look like. And that's the whole point of the Fed tightening monetary policy. One of the risks that I would highlight, though, you know, one of the ways to think about what some of the, the distribution of risk is, what might be different this time, we took a look at how, what percent of the IG indices are triple B rated. And the percent that's just on the precipice of being downgraded into junk is significantly higher in the U.S. and Euro area this time around than it was previously. And the reason we flag that as a risk is if we do see a material slowdown and a wave of a wave of downgrades out of the IG space, you could see a significant amount of, say, forced selling or something like that. That could lead to uh, some difficulties in the lower credit quality of the IG space, and as a result, kind of a nonlinear tightening in financial conditions. 
It, it's interesting that you should mention credit ratings. Just recently, Fitch came out with a warning of the U.S.'s AAA rating being uh, potentially negatively impacted by the shutdown. Now, if the shutdown, I think the exact quote was something to the effect of if the shutdown moves past or lasts past March 1st of this year, we will consider revising the U.S.'s credit rating. Now, the last time this happened... I think it was a, a, a much, much, much bigger deal. That was when uh, S&P downgraded the U.S. in 2011. And what happened during that episode is the treasury market was in the, in the midst of a pretty significant rally. Uh, we did have a 15 basis point sell-off in 10s the day of, but then the market subsequently rallied. The idea there being if the U.S., is going to be downgraded, then you have to look around, presumably, at the rest of the world and see if it the if by comparison one might want to reconsider uh, where, for example, Italy should be ranked, where we should see the ratings even on some of our closer neighbors. So, if Fitch were to downgrade Treasuries, would you use any cheapening, any resulting cheapening, as a buying opportunity? Would you try to basically fade the downgrade in expectation of similar price action? Uh, I certainly would because I think that we've actually traded the downgrade once already and it has been a short-lived relative non-event overall. Credit quality, I think, is, is just generally speaking an interesting construct and uh, concept within the treasury market. After all, the uh, as a reserve currency, the U.S. is in a very specific uh, position in which we can just always print dollars to pay back the bulk of our borrowing. Uh, but it does suggest that we might have some type of uh, auction-related problems. Problem might not be the correct word, but much like in 2018, when one of the biggest concerns was that we would come up against supply indigestion, I think that in 2019, the market is also somewhat concerned about that. I, I don't know, Ben, what are you thinking on this? I mean, nothing that I think any of us have seen throughout 2018 and even to start 2019 have pointed to deep-seated supply indigestion and any quote-unquote weak auctions that we saw weren't actually all that weak. There were a few exceptions, but in general, any step back from a certain type of investor or a downtick in direct bidding like in October's auctions last year faded pretty quickly into the rearview mirror. So that, from a fundamental perspective, I think shifting the focus to supply really mattering as a bearish risk is just not something that the results last year or so far this year with the three auctions we've had have, uh, have pointed to. And one additional support for that, Ben, is that if you look at term premia, you know, if there was really starting to be supply indigestion further out the curve that could lead to uh, higher treasury yields outside of policy expectations, uh, kind of by definition, that's a term premia shock. And, you know, it's super hard to estimate it, but the last estimates I've been looking at put 10-year term premia at still negative 60 points, which is pretty remarkable given we have all-time record deficit sizes. So back as it all relates to risk assets and the correlation between treasury rates and equities at this moment in time, one of the things that I thought was fascinating over the last couple of weeks is the equity market's focus on the balance sheet. 
and the potential for the either accelerated runoff or the deceleration in the runoff of SOMA. That was somewhat, frankly, a bit surprising to me because it tends not to be a quick-moving part of monetary policy for the Fed. Uh, And then obviously there's this open question about adjusting interest on excess reserves. John, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is kind of one of those massive questions that's lingering in the background of the market. And I'd agree with you that the equity market's response to Powell's comments at the press conference that the balance sheet runoff was on autopilot uh, surprised me, frankly, that that was not new information. Uh, They'd been pretty clear that the balance sheet roll-off policy was passive. They did want it to be preordained and set largely in stone. Uh, maybe not in stone, but you know what I mean. And uh, the reaction that the FOMC officials have shown in the following weeks, kind of walking back some of the autopilot comments, indicating they might be flexible, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether that is a true tone shift, because we haven't actually seen a policy shift in balance sheet uh, runoff whatsoever. Uh, So is this more of kind of a lip service adjustment in terms of the runoff speed, where they're at least acknowledging, hey, there's a chance that we're tightening financial conditions faster than we think, Uh, we don't want to commit a policy error, dot, dot, dot. Or is this truly laying the groundwork for a shift in the balance sheet runoff speed, whether they might taper it, whether they might kind of make some adjustments uh, going forward? Uh, because previously, the core focus hadn't really been on the impact on financial conditions. Rather, the core focus in terms of balance sheet runoff had been they want to reduce excess reserves down to an efficient level to implement monetary policy. And so one of the things we've been watching closely is how is Fed funds trading to IOER, with obviously it, Fed funds having increased to the point where it's now at parity with IOER, and even the 75th percentile of Fed funds trading is above IOER. That being said, it was always going to be much more difficult for Fed funds to trade above IOER than it was going to trade equivalent to. So one of the the big questions we've gotten from clients, as you alluded, is, you know, do we expect another technical adjustment to IOER where they only raise IOER 20 basis points in a hike? I think there are a couple things on that is, one... I don't have a truly high conviction that they will continue to do so anywhere near as I did that they would in December. And part of the reason for that is that for basically you'd need to see Fed funds trade another call it five basis points above IOER, which means that banks have the opportunity to lend in Fed funds above IOER and choose not to. They choose to get a lower rate at IOER. It's possible they would still do that for some regulatory reasons, but it's kind of an open question as to whether they would. The, the other is that the minutes have made it very clear that the committee only wants to make a technical adjustment, really, when they hike rates. They don't want to have to explain that they just cut IOAR five basis points, but they're not actually changing policy rates. That's a really convoluted communication message. What if they don't raise rates again in 2019? How are they going to try to combine the message of making a technical adjustment in a world where they're not necessarily raising rates. It's, I, think, I think that's kind of a space to watch, and I'd be curious if we see any communication uh, coming out either from some of the more technical staff inside the Fed or even some of the 
broader Fed speak, be it a president or board member or something like that, diving into the wonky side of the pool? Well, I do think that brings up a, another good question and something that uh, that I've heard a few times over the course of the last few weeks, and that is what's going on with the very front end of the curve, whether it's uh, ones, twos, whether it's the euro dollar structure, uh, obviously a bit of inversion going on in terms of people pricing in the potential for rate cuts. Uh, how do you see that evolving? So for context, I was looking at this earlier today that the if you look at the December 2019, December 2020 euro dollar spread, it's rather inverted, something like negative 15 basis points. And I mean, personally, that's kind of, it's been fascinating to watch that blow out in the past several weeks, starting the beginning of December, as it seems like there was a bit of a capitulation trade on the front end, trying to short some of the market. The conviction to necessarily anticipate cuts uh, strikes me as interesting. Because as a base case, I don't know that we should necessarily be anticipating any cuts in 2019. At least I'm certainly not. And uh, it's kind of the broader economic question or framework to think about this is, how much momentum does the economy have? There are a ton of downside risks, global growth, housing, throw out your favorite selection. And uh, one, will the U.S. economy be able to sustain its current momentum? And two, what could change it? So I don't know if you have any particular favorite things that could turn the tide. A couple that I've tossed around could either be a trade deal or infrastructure package. But I don't know. Are there any that you see as particularly salient? Well, I think turning the uh, the tide is entirely a matter of perspective. There's certainly a significant subset of the market that believes that the U.S. economy is going great. There's only one direction to go from here, and that's even higher. And I think that that implies that we're not going to see some of the broader hesitation on the part of the business community translate through to hesitation on the part of the consumer, which ultimately will impact consumption. I think consumption, uh, as is often the case, is always the biggest risk for the next leg of the current expansion. Is that curtailed by a longer shutdown combined with a longer trade negotiation? Could be. I'm actually, in terms of headwinds and things that might uh, support the market, I'm watching Europe very closely. Obviously, it appears, at least for the time being, that Germany was able to avoid a technical recession. That doesn't say anything about Italy. That doesn't say anything or tell us anything about uh, what's going on in Northern Europe as well. So I think that there are certainly a number of significant unknowns that could ultimately weigh simply on consumer confidence and therefore spending. Coming off of a, uh, a solid, if not uh, spectacular, spending holiday spending season. So I think that the bar for continued growth uh, is a bit higher than we might have typically anticipated this time of the year. Have you been surprised in any way by the resilience of consumer confidence. You know, one of the one of the issues as we watch the data day in, day out, we're watching equity markets go down, we're watching this data series look bad, dot, dot, dot. But consumer confidence still looks great. Have, have you been starting to see any signs of a deterioration there? Well, one of the big biggest correlations within confidence is with gasoline prices. And so we've had a pretty big retracement lower in gasoline prices, which allows for a more disposable income combined with a relatively uh, pro-business administration. I think that there's still a reasonable amount of optimism on the consumer side. It, it, it 
if for no other reason, then the unemployment rate continues to print extremely low. And this most recent 312,000 NFP print certainly leaves the average consumer with a fair amount of uh, optimism for the period ahead. And I think another good point on that, John, is when we've looked historically at consumer sentiment levels, they, as you might expect, track very well with stock performance. But it's also important to remember that when these high levels, like we're seeing right now, turn, they do so very quickly and very dramatically. So things are going great right up until the point they're not, which I think kind of ties in well with our more broadly held views. The thing that uh, I, I would add to that just quickly is we're starting to see some of that already play out in the manufacturing sector. We saw it with ISM, and then just recently this week, we saw it with the Empire State Manufacturing Survey. When these sentiment indicators turn, to your point, Ben, they ten, tend to turn rather dramatically. And so we could be at the, at the point where consumer confidence is the next shoe to drop, as it were. If or when you start to see that dramatic kind of inflection point or pivot, what kind of trades would you recommend being and how would, how would you recommend investors be positioned? Well, I think that the easiest call there is the belly of the curve is going to outperform. And frankly, that is an important trigger for the cyclical re-steepening, particularly of the 530s curve that we've been talking about. Choose tens think will ultimately end up steeper, although there might be an initial grab for duration that pushes us to the point of being flat or inverted, particularly if consumer sentiment starts to turn at a moment where the Fed wants to keep the potential for a rate hike on the table during the first half of the year. So you might actually see the official tone shift from pricing in a pause for March to making sure that the market is willing to price in a rate hike in June. Great. That's definitely good context for everyone going forward. And for those interested, please feel free to reach out and submit questions for discussions on future episodes. Now, Ian, how are you thinking about the week ahead? In the week ahead, the 45th president is going on his 30th day of the government shutdown. And very little has changed for the macroeconomic outlook. The U.S. is still in a trade war with China. The government shutdown is still expected to do some, if minimal, economic damage in the first quarter for the U.S. And all of the uncertainties that have brought 10-year yields back to 275 still remain. Monday's a holiday in the U.S., so we'll get a welcome reprieve from some of the dueling headlines. The one thing that we will learn over the weekend is what fourth quarter real GDP looked like for China. This is of particular interest for several reasons. First, the full impact of the tariffs in 2018 will at least begin to be revealed, although since they weren't in place throughout the year, I'd be more concerned with what 2019 will look like. The other aspect of it is if the White House takes the comparative slowing in China versus the U.S. as a signal that it might have more power at the negotiation table, we might ultimately see the administration take a more hardline stance, which would certainly not increase the probability of a deal in the near term. Moreover, it would just layer in the already risk-off nature of the negotiation. To be fair, we've been on the more cautious side of the economic outlook for the last several quarters. 
But that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to see a economic slowdown or a recession in the U.S., technical or otherwise. It's not a foregone conclusion. In fact, we've taken a fair amount of encouragement from how quickly the Fed has been willing to respond to the tightening of financial conditions. Now, arguably, they simply responded to a rather dramatic drop in stocks, but that's a bit beside the point because it was a shift in outlook reflected by movement in asset prices. We've continued to hear a steady stream from Fed officials talking about prudence, patience, good judgment, taking a break, a pause. And as a result, the market has obviously priced it in. But more importantly, there's been a shift in the debate between whether or not the Fed will pause and how long the Fed will pause. Yellen was tasked with defining gradual for the market. And the definition that uh, was agreed upon was apparently 25 basis points a quarter. Powell is now tasked with defining what a pause is and how long a pause will be. Is it six months? Is it a year? Is it longer? One thing that's safe to say, March is off the table. And if March doesn't happen, then May just becomes far less likely because it's six weeks after they might have gone March. June has a reasonable probability, not necessarily of being a tightening event, but rather of the Fed communicating that June is a live meeting, and that will play out in the Treasury market by increasing the odds, obviously there's zero at this point, to something above zero. So that will be a flattener, damage the front end of the market. Realistically, December, using 2016's experience as a guide, December is the meeting that has, at least in my mind, the highest probability of coming into play and being the live meeting, at least from the market's perspective. As for the market, treasuries have found a reasonably comfortable range, apparently. We've been trading up against that 275 level in 10-year yields, putting in a solid volume bulge. We're seeing a reasonable amount of consolidation around this point. Very comfortable with the idea that the prospects for another leg lower in yields have not been reduced by this in-range sell-off. More importantly... There are several technical indicators that suggest the bearish momentum has started to run its course. Specifically, stochastics are well within oversold territory. We're actually starting to see a curl in stochastics, which points to a potential for a move lower in yields. DSIs, which had been overbought, have retraced solidly no longer in overbought territory, which clears the way for another rally. We've been tracking the death cross, which is the cross of the 50 and 200 day moving averages in fives, sevens, and tens. We haven't got there yet in thirties, but it's almost an inevitability if we don't see a more significant sell-off. Underperformance is one thing, but the outright level of 30-year yield suggests that the 50-day moving average is going to continue to edge lower. This is more than just a nuance. In fact, shifts like this tend to represent a regime move, either lower or higher in yields, and in this case, it was lower. In addition, within the last two weeks, we've actually seen two outside days higher in 10-year yields. Outside days higher are not so rare that this is a flag, but they're rare enough that it's worth highlighting. More importantly, 
since December 25th, we've actually seen three outside days higher in yields. Now, historically, that would be considered a bearish formation and suggest that yields should move higher as the next leg. That said, if we look over the course of the last, call it two and a half years, big outside day higher moves in yields have actually been followed by rallies, some small, some more significant. The biggest takeaway from this is we have witnessed a regime shift to lower yields and we're in the process of defining the range and it's choppier, suggesting that there's a broader rethink of macroeconomic expectations going forward. On a final note, consumer confidence just tanked. The University of Michigan print on Friday was the weakest since October 2016 and the largest monthly drop since 2012. This parallels what we have seen on the business side. Recall that ISM manufacturing has now retraced to pre-election levels. Said differently, we've taken all of the Trumponomics-inspired optimism out of both the business sector and the consumer sector. And given the amount of concentration risk that there is in the U.S. economy on the consumer, this is troubling. The market didn't respond to it, which I find fascinating, but the current narrative is that whatever keeps the Fed from moving forward with rate hikes is ultimately going to be positive for the equity market. And so as a result, that feedback loop between equities and yields has been the dominant driver rather than what the incremental piece of negative economic data means for the Fed. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for everyone who reached out with feedback and submitted questions. We truly appreciate the help and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, 
shops and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.